Home sweet home, a familiar phrase, and because you can find anything by simply Googling it, I wanted to know what was the origin of that little phrase, home sweet home. And I learned that it comes from a song in an opera called Clarie, or The Maid of Milan, that was first performed in London in 1823. And the words of the song go like this, mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. But then that was picked up by soldiers in the Civil War, and it became an anthem that soldiers away from home at war sang. And those words were these, mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. A charm from the sky seems to hallow us there, which seek through the world is ne'er met with elsewhere. Home, home, sweet, sweet home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. An exile from home, splendor dazzles in vain. Oh, give me my lowly thatched cottage again. The birds singing gaily that come at my, came at my call, give me them with the peace of mind clearer than all. Home, home, sweet, sweet home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Now, I'm aware that growing up in some of the homes you grew up in was not a pleasant place. But as having grown up, you're establishing a home of your own, and hopefully it's different there than what you grew up with. But I think most of us can relate to home sweet home, can't we? You go away on vacation, and maybe it's a very enjoyable vacation, but as you pull into the driveway, as you open your front door, and you're faced with the familiarity of the atmosphere of home, don't you think in your mind, home, sweet home? Maybe you go off to college, and you're away from home for an extended period of time for the first time in preparation for being weaned off of your parents. But you come home for Christmas vacation, and as you see your home in the distance, doesn't your heart say, home, sweet home? Maybe if you move to another location, it takes a little time for your house to become a home, doesn't it? But when you paint the walls and when you furnish it with your own furnishings and your own things, after a while, it becomes home sweet home. One of the things we pray for our missionaries is, especially during holiday times, that they would not be overwhelmed with home sickness, home sweet home. Well, brothers and sisters, imagine the Jews who had been separated from their sweet homeland for 50 to 70 years. And their homeland was not any homeland. They were the people of God, chosen from among all the nations of the earth to be God's people. God lived in their home, Jerusalem. But because of their wicked, vile idolatry, God had gotten fed up with them, sent them away into captivity. But now, some 70 years later, they're being given opportunity to return to their home sweet home. Friends, that is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. And as I'm trying to give one sermon per book of the Bible, we come this morning to the book of Ezra, which is after First and Second Chronicles. The books originally in the Hebrew canon were united as one, but we're going to study them separately. The author of the book is the one who bears, whose name it bears, Ezra, 
even though he doesn't really show up until chapter 7 of this 10-chapter book as we have it. So my outline is very simple this morning. I'm going to look at the plot line of Ezra, spend most of our time there, the place of Ezra in God's big plan, and then some practical lessons we can learn from Ezra. So let's begin with the plot line of Ezra. I'm basically going to walk you through the content of the book. Ezra and Nehemiah were two men who were instrumental in the reconstituted community of Israel after they returned from Babylonian captivity. Ezra in his ministry to the temple and as a scribe teaching the people the law of God. Nehemiah, as we'll see God willing next week, instrumental in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now the story begins with what I'm calling permission and provision to return. Now, God had stipulated the amount of time that his people would be in exile. Jeremiah 29.10, for example, says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So after that period of 70 years, roughly, Persia conquered the Babylonians who had taken Israel into captivity. So in 538 B.C., roughly 70 years, at least from the first deportation, we read in the opening verse of the book of Ezra, and I ask you to turn there. I have to turn there myself, the book of Ezra. Um, in the opening verse, we read, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. In fact, Cyrus is even mentioned by name in the prophecy of Isaiah 44:28. So Cyrus, this Persian king, invites anyone among the Jews who wants to, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. And he invites those who choose not to go to support those returnees by supplying silver, gold, goods, cattle, etc. Now we read in, chapter, in verse 2 of Ezra 1, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. When you read that, it sounds like Cyrus is a believer in Yahweh, right? That's probably not the case. The fact is, the Persians were very tolerant when it came to the religions of the people in their empire. And they had a practical reason for that. They wanted to, the people to be happy and at peace. There was also an ulterior motive. They wanted the gods of whatever people they were to be praying for them. So it sounds like he's a believer, but he's really using the language of the Jews to accommodate to them. It's kind of like our modern politicians. Sometimes they have nothing to do with biblical Christianity, but if they're appealing to an evangelical crowd and they want your vote, they may quote from the Bible. Even the likes of Gavin Newsom from California has been known to do that. But certain ones then... Uh, he gives this invitation, any of the Jews who want to may return to their homeland, and certain ones, including priests, Levites, and it says, those in whose spirit God stirred, they arose to go back to their homeland, and some of their neighbors strengthened their hands, it says, giving them silver, gold, goods, cattle, and things they would need. 
Cyrus even brought uh, articles out of the temple which had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple, he had taken certain articles, put them in the house of his own pagan gods, but now Cyrus is taking those things, giving them to the Jews so that they might take them back to Jerusalem. There was a total of over 42,000 people who made that original trip. And in addition, there were over 7,000 male and female servants who would have worked in the the temple when they rebuilt it, and 200 singers. It's just a small remnant. So the people arrive back in Jerusalem. They offer willingly to contribute to the restoration of the temple. And once they get back in Jerusalem, they gather together in a unified way as one under the leadership of two men, Jeshua and Zerubbabel. Before they even began to rebuild the temple, however, they built an altar they celebrated the Feast of Booths, and they began to offer burnt offerings. Remember, they had really messed up their worship before. That's what sent them into captivity. Now they're back in the land. I think they want to get their worship right. Let's do it right this time. They begin to gather materials to build the foundation of the temple. They pay masons and carpenters. They pay men from Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar, from, from, cedar wood from Lebanon. It appears that they want, they want to follow the pattern of the first temple built by Solomon. In the second year from the time of their return, which would have been 536 BC, they begin to build the temple. They appoint Levites, the temple workers, 20 years old and older to oversee the work. And when the foundation is laid of the foundation, they have a celebration. The priests blow trumpets, the Levites crash cymbals, and the people shout with great shouts of praise and thankfulness for the goodness and loving kindness of God upon them. But it says that their shouts of joy were also mingled with some weeping. And some commentators would say the older men, the older people were weeping. It could be because of nostalgia, because they remembered the first temple. But Haggai, the prophet, a contemporary prophet, gives us a hint that they were weeping because the temple didn't compare to the first temple. It was not going to be as large. So there was joy mixed with some weeping. But now that they've begun to build the temple, they face opposition, chapters 4 and 5. Enemies arise to oppose the work. What were the tactics of those enemies? The first tactic seen in chapter 4 is cooperation. The people of the land say, hey, we'll help you build the temple. Literally, they say, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up from here, up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua sensed that something was wrong, that their worship was not pure worship, so they did not allow them to cooperate with them. They said, thanks, but no thanks. We'll do the building ourselves. Now, when that attempt at cooperation didn't work, they turned to intimidation. The people switched their tactic to try to discourage, literally to weaken the hands of the people building the temple and to frighten them. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel, and it worked. And so the building of the temple ceased from the days of Cyrus until the second year of King Darius, who reigned from 522 to 486. Basically, from 536 to 520, the work ceased. 16 years 
no work on the temple. Now, as we're reading through Ezra, at this point, he takes a digression. There's a parenthesis. Tom Schreiner, the theologian, says, the chapter takes a surprising turn. And what Ezra does is he shifts our attention from what's going on in building the temple to um, years ahead, some 50, 60, 50 years ahead, when there would continue to be opposition from the then king, Artaxerxes. And that would not be opposition to building the temple, but that later opposition would be to rebuilding the wall. And you ask, as you're reading, why does he all of a sudden stop and take us 50 years forward to future opposition to building the wall? And the point seems to be this, that he wants to impress upon us that the opposition to the work of God in building the temple was something that was continuous. It was ongoing. And in a more general sense, we can say that there will always be opposition to the work of God. From the time of the fall, the seed of the serpent will always be working against the seed of the woman. The accusation that will come in the future, actually in the time of Ezra, took the form of accusation. We've seen attempted cooperation to commingle with them, and then intimidation, and now we see accusation. What the people will do in that day is they will see the people of Israel rebuilding the wall, and they will make accusation. And they send a letter to King Artaxerxes, who will be king at that time, and they referred to the Jews as rebuilding what they called the rebellious and evil city. And they say, if you let them do this, they will not pay tribute or toll. It will hurt your revenue. They have a history of being rebellious and revolting. Check it out, King Artaxerxes. Well, King Artaxerxes does check it out, and he does indeed find that the Jews had a history of rebellion and revolt. And so that future work is halted for a time by force of arms. Now that takes us into the book of Nehemiah. But then Ezra comes back to the current matter of rebuilding the temple. And remember, it had been hindered for 16 years. Why did it resume? Well, we're told in the text that there were two prophets, contemporary prophets, um, Haggai and Zechariah, who came to support the work. And with their help, with their encouragement as prophets, men of God, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, resumed the work on rebuilding the house of God. But then they're challenged again. A certain governor by the name of Tatanai says, why are you doing this? Who permitted you to do this? And they said, well, Cyrus gave us a decree to permit us to do this. And so they send a letter to the then king Darius and say, hey, they say they got permission from Cyrus. Will you research this? And so we have the decree of Darius and the dedication of the temple. Darius does research it, and he finds out, indeed, Cyrus had given them permission to rebuild the temple, and he had even said that it was to be paid for out of the royal treasury. And then he tells the governor, Tatanai, leave them alone, what we would call a restraining order. Keep away from them and let the work continue without delay. Moreover, it is to be paid for from the royal treasury without delay. 
whatever they need for the worship of their God, young bulls, rams, lambs, a burnt offering, wheat, salt, wine, and anointing, let it be given to them daily without fail. Amazing. God is working in the heart of this pagan king, Darius, to not only give permission for the building of the temple, but to supply the resources out of the royal treasury for it to get done. And he tells them to carry it out, quote, with all diligence. Well, Tatanai, the governor, and his colleagues uh, obey the king, and they carry it out with all diligence, it says. And the Jews are then successful through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. They finish the building of the temple according, quote, to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, even though he was future. So the temple is finished in the sixth year of Darius. It had begun in 536 BC. It was finished in 516, 20 years, but 16 of those years, they were not doing any work on it. They celebrated the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with joy. And then they said, the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So all of that, the first six chapters have to do with the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra, the one for whom the book is named, hasn't even come on the scene yet. But you come to chapter seven, enter Ezra. Ezra comes on the scene. The temple's been completed in 516 BC. This is 60 years later in the reign of another king, Artaxerxes. Ezra enters the picture. And when we find Ezra, he's about to make a four-month uh, journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told a little bit about Ezra in chapter 7. We're given his ancestry because he was a priest. 16 generations, all the way back to Aaron, saying Ezra was a bona fide a priest. But he was not only a priest. He was a man, it says, a, a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. This is the second group to return to Jerusalem, led by Ezra. And it says, the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. You get that? The king granted him favor because the hand of his God was upon him. A couple of verses later, it says that he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. So ultimately, as we'll see later, it's the sovereignty of God that moved the heart of the king to give him permission. But why was the hand of his God upon him? A verse we're going to come to when I make application is chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it. Before he taught it to others, he practiced it himself. Ezra was a godly man. He is said to be like a second Moses. He was a godly man who knew the law of God, loved the law of God, and practiced the law of God. And as a result of God's hand being upon him, he was given the favor of King Artaxerxes. What did that mean? It's amazing what this pagan king was inclined to do for Ezra and the group of Jews returning with him. 
First of all, Artaxerxes said, anybody from Israel who wants to go, including priests and Levites, you're free to go. Not only that, he provided them with silver and gold from the king's own treasury to buy the animals that they would sacrifice. He commanded that the treasurer beyond the river where they were going, that they also supply diligently all that Ezra the priest and scribe requires, and that they do it with zeal. He prohibited that any tax, tribute, or toll be imposed on any of the temple workers, Levites, or priests. And he permitted Ezra to use the wisdom of his God to appoint magistrates and judges who know the laws of his God and to teach any who are ignorant. And get this, King Artaxerxes said that anybody who did not observe the law of Ezra's God was to be punished either by death, by banishment, by confiscation of his goods, or imprisonment. Friends, this is a pagan king who had no interest in the God of Israel. He did have an interest in keeping his people at peace, but he is granting all this permission and all this provision for Ezra and the Jews to return to their land. Ezra, in chapter 7, 28 and 27 and 28, I just read this as a window on the soul of this godly man. He breaks forth in praise, Ezra 7, 28, 7 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then we have the journey home in chapter 8. Ezra is preparing to go back to Jerusalem to teach the people the law, there's a list of people who accompanied him, and as they get to the river before they cross, he realizes, wait a minute, we don't have any Levites. And he knows that for proper temple worship, you need Levites. The Levites were the ones who really directed the, the temple worship along with the priests. And we don't have any Levites here. And um, it says that uh, he's, he sends for some Levites, and then, according to the good hand of our God upon us, he was sent, some 38 men to serve as Levites, another 200 temple servants. Now, before taking the journey, he asks the Lord for safety and travel. Is it your practice before you take a trip to ask the Lord for, quote, traveling mercies? You ever do that? Well, here's a biblical basis for it. In Ezra 8.21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. You want a biblical basis for saying, Lord, give us traveling mercies on this trip. There you got it in Ezra 8, 21. Um, but one thing Ezra did not do, he's making a, day, a, a journey of 900 to 1,000 miles and apparently was dangerous. But he didn't ask the king for protection. Now, Nehemiah gets protection. Ezra did not ask the king. The king was willing to give him so much. One thing he didn't ask for is soldiers or troops to accompany him to assure a safe journey. And here's the reason. Listen to this, because it has significance. He says, the hand of our Ezra had testified to this pagan king with these words. 
The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. Because he had given that witness, so to speak, to the pagan king, the hand of our God is upon us if we seek him. He said he would, was ashamed and embarrassed to ask the king for troops. And could you see the reason for that? I've just told the king, our God will protect us. And for them to say, but can you give us some troops? Would have betrayed a lack of trust in his God. And I think it underscores to us, brothers and sisters, Christians, that what we say by witness with our words, we need to back up with our lives. If you speak about God as a God of truth to unbelievers, you'd better be scrupulously honest in all of your dealings. If you speak about your God and Savior, as we should, as kind and compassionate, then you ought to display kindness and compassion in your own life. If you speak of your God, as we should, of a God of holiness and, and absolute purity, then we need to reflect that purity in our own lives. Like Ezra, we want the witness of our words to be underscored, not undermined, by the witness of our walk. Ezra then testifies that indeed the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. God did protect them. They arrive at Jerusalem and they give to a priest in the temple the silver and the gold, the utensils. They tell the satraps what the king said. Hey, you need to pay for this from the, the royal treasury. And so Ezra begins his ministry. He doesn't tell us a lot about it. But now we have, some of you will relate to this, trouble in River City. Or if you don't relate to that, Houston, we have a problem. If you don't know what any of that is, there's a grievous sin that enters the community. After these things, it's reported to Ezra that some of the people of Israel, including priests and Levites, had not separated themselves from the pagan peoples of the land who gave themselves to abominations, but were actually intermarrying with the people of the land. Ezra, as a godly man who trembled at the law of the Lord, was beside himself in grief. Typical of Jews, he ripped his garment and his robe, but not only that, he pulled out some of his hair and some of his beard. Now when we get to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, pulled out somebody else's beard, but Ezra pulls out his own hair and his own beard in grief over what they were doing. And he gets on his knees, he stretches out his hands, and he makes this prayer, and you've got to hear this prayer, realizing it's coming from a man who has just ripped his clothes and pulled out the hair of his head and his beard. Ezra 9.6, and he said, oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, captivity, to plunder and to open shame as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, 
Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, and in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take your, their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant after this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, it was because of our sins such as this, intermarrying with the people and falling into idolatry that we were sent into captivity. And now you're being gracious to us. You're giving us a window of opportunity to be restored. You've given us favor in the, in the eyes of the king. You're now enabling us to rebuild the temple and the city. And now what have we done? We've fallen back into the same old sins again. And he ends with, Lord, is there any hope for us? And I want to take a pause and apply this to ourselves. I think the lesson here is a warning against sinning against mercy. They were being shown mercy, weren't they? God sent them into captivity in his anger, but in his grace and kindness, he brought them back. You got a fresh start. And what are they doing? Falling back into the same old sins. There's a warning here against sinning against mercy. There's a proverb, Proverbs 29.1 that says, he who hardens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly broken beyond remedy. And first, I want to speak to anyone here who may not yet be a believer in Jesus Christ, because you're sinning against mercy. You have heard the gospel multiple times, if not countless times, but you have not believed in Jesus. My friend, you are in a dangerous place. You see, the kindness of God in allowing you to hear the gospel and, and see it lived out in the lives of people is a great kindness to you. It's a great mercy to you. And I call upon you to not try God's patience. You could, like the proverb says, be suddenly cut off and go to an eternity without Jesus Christ, which according to Jesus is a, a, an endless anguish of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Sin against God's mercy no longer, but today believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. But even for us as believers, sometimes we can fall into a pattern of sin and stubbornly continue in that sin. Despite the mercies that God shows us, God is merciful in bringing us into difficult circumstances to reprove us. God is merciful in bringing some brothers or sisters to, to give us some verbal reproofs. Brother, you need to turn. You need to repent. And if we don't listen, God's just going to turn up the heat. He loves you too much to let you continue in your sin. Those whom he loves, he, he disciplines, scourges every son whom he receives. Don't sin against the mercy of God. The kindness of God is to turn us in repentance. Well, what happened? Good news, at least for the book of Ezra. They did get right with God. While Ezra was praying, confessing, weeping, and prostrating himself, a large assembly came, weeping bitterly. A representative of the people confessed the people's unfaithfulness, said, let's make a covenant with God to put away those foreign wives. And they asked Ezra to lead them. And it led to a process whereby those who had violated, by the way, they're named by name. And the priests and the Levites are named first. It's kind of like the Ashley Madison scandal, where people were named, right? If you know what that's about. Why were the leaders mentioned first? Because it's more egregious for leaders to sin. James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers, because those who teach will receive a stricter judgment. But apparently there was a, a national repentance an arrangement made for the various ones to come to their cities and repent of their sins, um, give up their pagan wives. And so, so far, so good for the time being. So the book of Ezra ends. The Jews are back in their land. The temple's rebuilt. The city still is vulnerable because there's no wall that previously protected it. The wall needs to be rebuilt. Stay tuned for Nehemiah, God willing, next week. Very briefly, that's the, that's the plot line. Where does Ezra fit in in the big story? And that's what we're looking at. Why are we studying one sermon per book of the Bible? We want to get the big picture, right, of God's grand plan. Where does Ezra fit in? Well, we're in that period of time where we have the partial kingdom. Israel's the partial kingdom. Now, the prophets had prophesied that after captivity, they would be returned to their land. Are we going to see now the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15? Well, in one sense, you have to wait and see, but we do know the end of the story. The return to captivity will not bring in the ultimate kingdom. There's an exodus back into their promised land, but it's not the final exodus. That will await another king, King Jesus before the kingdom comes in its fullness. Well, let me close with some practical applications, lessons from Ezra. First of all, one thing that leaps off the pages of Ezra, and I hope you got a glimpse of it, is the sovereignty of God. 1-1, one, one, he stirs up the spirit of Cyrus of Persia to send the people back into the land. Then he stirs the spirits of certain ones to want them to go back into the land. Chapter 5, verse 5, the work on the temple 
was not stopped because the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. Chapter 6, 22, in celebrating the completion of the temple, the people have joy because the Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. 7, 6, when Ezra came to Jerusalem, the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. 7, 9, Ezra came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. In the end of chapter 7, in light of all the provisions that God had made for Ezra, he breaks out in that praise, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in, as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And there are other verses for time's sake. I'll stop there. The book of Ezra is a fleshing out of that grand principle of Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he wills, like channels of water. What Ezra teaches us is God is absolutely sovereign. He is even sovereign over the hearts of pagan kings who have no desire to please God. They are under God's control. And friends, that ought to be of great comfort to us. We're living in a scary world, aren't we? We're living in a very uncertain world. But it's a comfort for us to know that the heart, of Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, the Muslim Ayatollahs, and even some of our ungodly politicians and leaders, every one of their hearts is in the hand of the king of heaven, the king of kings. And they will do nothing except what the God of heaven wills and ordains. Now, that doesn't mean that as Christians, we just sit on our hands and watch it happen. We are to vote responsibly. We are to speak truth and righteousness on every platform the Lord gives us. We are to be salt and light in our society on every front possible. We are to pray for kings and those in authority. We're to do all we can to be what God wants us to be as holy people in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But at the end of the day, whatever happens is by the sovereign decree of God. And then God's work done in God's way will not lack God's support. When you see the sovereignty of God, what was the sovereignty of God doing in the book of Ezra? The sovereignty of God is allowing the people of God to do the work of God. And there are three areas. First of all, the sovereignty of God was to make provision for God's servants. The pagan kings were saying, yeah, you can go rebuild, rebuild your temple and we're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it. God's sovereignty operated to make provision for the work of, of the kingdom. God's sovereignty operated to give protection. Our God, we trust in our God, and God gave protection on that 900,000-mile journey. God protected them in his sovereignty, and God's sovereignty gave them direction. When Ezra said, we need more Levites, God in his sovereignty provided them. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, we're seeking to do kingdom work, aren't we? Aren't we seeking to build the kingdom of God in our generation? And that will be through the ministry of the gospel and the church. And we have the promise of Jesus Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of the gospel in every generation. But in order to have God's 
sovereign provision, protection, and direction. Brothers and sisters, we need to do God's work in God's way. At least at this point, the Jews were doing things right. Otherwise, God's hand would not have been upon them. God was with them at that point. God wouldn't be with them. His hand wouldn't be upon Ezra and the others unless God was pleased with what they were doing. They were doing God's work in God's way, and they did not lack God's support. We need to do God's work in God's way. What does that mean? Well, very briefly, we need to do his work with spiritual and not carnal weapons. And what are those weapons? The two main weapons are truth and love. It is by the truth of God that his kingdom will advance. And we dare not compromise the truth. We dare not cave in to our secularized society and its values. We must hold to the truth of God's word, no matter what kind of minority we come to constitute. It is the truth, the weapon of truth, uncompromised, and the weapon of love. Love for one another. Love for the lost. Those are our twin spiritual weapons by which God would own our labors. Truth and love. And then we want to see third of four. Our perpetual enemy has many devices. Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices or his schemes. And you saw some of the schemes that the enemies of the Jews used to thwart their work. And we have the same enemies and the same tactics used against us. There was the tactic of cooperation, ecumenism. Hey, we want to join with you. But they said, no, 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 no. We'll do it ourselves. We don't have the same, I don't think I read that phrase, but he said something to the effect, we have nothing in common with you. No, we can't let you join with us. When I was a candidate to come to the First Baptist Church of Downingtown more than 38 years ago, which I, I did, that's what brought me to Pennsylvania, um, a family who, they were, as they were considering this young man to be their pastor, a family asked me the question, I think by, in written form or telephone, would you support the statement of a sign welcoming people into Downingtown that said, the churches of Downingtown in mission together. And as a young man, I thought about that. I said, well, we can't be in mission together unless we have the same message. Well, they left the church and never even voted for me. So I guess I didn't give them the right answer. But I did give them the right answer in the sight of God. You can't have the same mission unless you have the same mission. A message. How should we think about cooperation with other Christians? I think we do well to think in terms of, well, first of all, we don't want to be like cultural fundamentalists. What I mean by that is there are certain types of Christians who they just love to separate from other Christians. They like to find every little petty tertiary thing to disagree with and break fellowship. They love to separate. We don't want that spirit of self-righteousness to characterize us. Well, how should we think about cooperation? Well, I think we do well to think of concentric circles. First of all, we might be co-belligerents with unbelievers or Roman Catholics if we're at an abortion mill, speaking out for the sanctity of life, right? It's not religious per se, but we stand with them socially, and we're a co-belligerent with them in that sphere. And then we go to Christian conferences, 
And if it's a Christian conference, hopefully it's about the Bible. And most of the people there will be believers, but there's going to be all kinds of theologies there that we might not disagree with, but we're all there partaking of the conference together. And then there are ministries that we might enter into jointly. Then you need a little bit more unity. We're not going to join with a charismatic group going out witnessing, and they're going to be telling people to speak in tongues and teaching them how to wag their tongues, and we're saying, no, 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 no. But the, the bullseye of the concentric circles would be the local church. That's where we need the most unity, to have the unity of the spirit, as the Bible speaks of it. That's where we need the most unity. But even there, we don't have uniformity. There are tertiary matters about which we disagree, and we have a healthy doctrine of Christian liberty. Then there was intimidation. They tried to frighten them. Satan is a fear monger. And one of his greatest weapons against the people of God is fear. Fear will keep us from witnessing to someone because I'm afraid of what they'll think of me. Fear will keep us from going to a brother or sister in love and telling them something that they need to hear, but, but they might not like me. Fear keeps some of our Amish friends who are believers stuck in the system because they're afraid of what people will think. Fear is a great weapon of the devil. But you know, God says in 2 Timothy 1.7, he's not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and self-control. But you know what the real weapon is against fear? 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. We all face fear. We all have fears. The question we should ask whenever we're afraid is, what does love dictate? Because whatever love dictates, it will be the opposite of fear. Fear is self-protective. Love is other-oriented. And if we ask the question, I'm afraid, but what does love dictate? Do the loving thing, and we will conquer fear. Then there was accusation. They accused them. The Jews, they're rebellious people. We face accusations as God's people. In fact, the devil's called the accuser of the brethren, right? Here's a question. How do you know whether it's the devil accusing you falsely or whether it's God, the Holy Spirit, convicting you? It's a good question, isn't it? We don't have a lot of time, but I think I would say in a nutshell, if it's the Holy Spirit, it will be something very specific, and it'll be a violation of, of the known will of God, because the Spirit of God wants you to repent and be cleansed. But if it's just a general sense of condemnation, just a general sense of guilt that you can't put your finger on, chances are it's the accuser of the brethren falsely accusing, oops, thought that might happen, um, falsely accusing you. Well, in the one case, if it's the Holy Spirit conviction, repent. If it's the devil, resist him. One final application, and we'll come to the Lord's Supper. And that's from the life of godly Ezra. Notice it says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it, and to teach it. He got the order right, didn't he? When I was with the navigators, they loved that verse, and rightly so. He studied, he practiced, and he taught. Isn't that the right order? Before he taught it to others, he practiced it in his own life. We need to do the same. Children are great discoverers of hypocrisy, aren't they? They can point out our hypocrisy in the home. But here's the thing. We need, when we read the word, 
And especially I say to men like myself who are pastors, who when we read the Bible, we're looking to analyze it and organize it and, and find stuff to teach to others. No, no. We need to have the arrows of truth directed first at our own hearts and lives. That means as we're reading the word, I need to ask, what sin does this expose in me? What promise is this making to me? What command is this giving to me? What example is this providing for me? What do I need to act on now based on what your word is saying here? And what does this portion of your word tell me about Jesus so that I might be more like him? And speaking about being more like Jesus, you can't be more like him unless you first know him. And if you're an unbeliever, may that unbelief end today. May you, by the grace of God, put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. Let's pray, and we'll sing song number 10, Come to the Supper. Father, thank you for the book of Ezra, all that it teaches us about you, your great sovereignty, your concern for your, the work of your kingdom. Thank you for the example of this great and godly man, Ezra. May we be people who study your word, but before we blab it to others, help us to be those who practice it first in our own lives. We ask in Jesus' name.